The folks who are just here on stage are some of the most trustworthy folks I've known. People I love the most. It makes me think of how many people in this church, the people, the, the, those who are in this church who are just filled with truth. But this morning, I want to start by talking about a liar. There's a liar among us. There is a liar in this room right now. The liar is subtle. But this liar has been looking you in the face and telling you a lie that could undermine your life. Probably looking around saying, who is it? Like eight dudes who are afraid in here. Let me tell you about this liar. The liar is really into technology. This liar today is dressed in brown. It's kind of short and wide. The liar has perfect attendance here Sunday after Sunday. The liar lets people walk all over it, but is doing great damage. Who is the liar? The liar is the very stage that I'm standing upon. The very presence of this stage sometimes can create a implicit idea that those who are sent, those who are commissioned, those who are doing ministry, the things that God cares about are the people who are on this stage. And it is a lie. It is an absolute lie. Because the reality is that Jesus commissions and sends all of us into his world. And today, the stage may want to say, what you do isn't all that important. But what Jesus is going to say to us is that you are called into a sacred mission to continue his mission. So let's stop listening to the liar and let's listen to Jesus. Go ahead and open your, open your Bibles to John 20, verses 21 and 22. It says this, Jesus, who's speaking to his disciples, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on in this passage? You see, the disciples had just experienced the most traumatizing thing that they could have ever conceived of. They gave their life to following Jesus, and they were a part of his mission. And then they watched him shamefully be assassinated in the streets, crucified on you know, the cross that we celebrate. And, and, and they must have been thinking the mission is over. We failed. We followed the wrong guy must have been devastated. But then Jesus shows up, resurrected, having conquered death, and now he's showing up at the house. And you can imagine they've got questions for Jesus. And Jesus is going to answer some questions. He's got time for them, but he has something very important he wants to say. He wants to tell them that the mission isn't over. And that he is commissioning them into the mission. It says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What should stand out to us is this word sending. It's a potent word. 
It speaks to the heart of God. And when you open the book of John, which we've been in for a while, uh, you see that sending is a big theme there. And it looks back over the biblical story, and it sees that the way that God accomplishes his mission is through sending. He sends Abraham, this this old guy, to to be a, a blessing to all nations. He sends Moses. He sends prophets. And at the pinnacle of the biblical story, he sends Jesus to accomplish the mission through his life, death, and resurrection. We see this in the book of John. Forty times it talks about sending. But this word is also a weighty word. It's it's the same word from which we get apostle, which has this this, uh, idea of being an ambassador or an emissary, someone who is sent by someone important on an important mission. And when Jesus is saying, as the Father sent me, I am sending you, he is commissioning his disciples and therefore his church to step into an important mission as his ambassadors and his emissaries. He's saying the mission continues, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue through you while I go be with the Father and send the Spirit to you. And what it also shows is that Jesus is our template for mission. The way that Jesus carried out his mission, as the Father sent me, is the way that we are to carry out the mission, so I am sending you. Jesus is sending us as his people on a sacred mission. And so let's look at what that looks like today. And what we're going to see is that just as Jesus was sent as as a conduit of God's presence, we are sent into the world to be a conduit of his presence in the places he has us. Just as Jesus was sent to bring the good news, we are sent to proclaim the good news. And Jesus, just as Jesus was sent with specific good works, we are sent with specific good works. Jesus didn't put you on this earth to aimlessly wander around the world and be mildly entertained for 70 years. He's got you on a sacred mission. Let's talk about what that looks like. So number one, we see that we're sent to be present, present, to show up. And what we see in the book of John, the first thing we see in John 1 is that God shows up. He is present, that God shows up by taking on flesh and walking among humanity, real hands placed on on people in need and healing them, real eyes seeing and being drawn towards them. And this may seem to you like, okay, what's the big deal? It's a big deal. Think about Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have to accomplish his mission that way. He could have just like dropped pamphlets from the sky that tell us about God. He could have created like a magical mango tree that when you open the mango, it's got like a message from God. He could have started a YouTube channel and just, you know, hey, this is Jesus, like and subscribe, you know. He could have done that. But the way he chooses to reveal himself, to to accomplish his mission of restoring all that's broken and bringing us near to a God that we need to know is by showing up in human flesh. And we see this in the beginning of the Gospel of John, this powerful sentence in John 1.14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came and he set up camp with humanity. 
And he brought the real physical presence of God to a particular place in a particular time in Israel in the first century. And this word dwelt, probably to the the readers of that time, when they heard the word dwell, they would have thought about the tabernacle. It's It's a related word. And the tabernacle was like, in the Old Testament, it was like a, best way I could describe it, it was like a, a mobile home of God's presence, right? Like, they, they just like drove this thing around, they carried this thing around, and it's the place that contained God's presence. And when you wanted to meet with God, that's where you would go. You would go to the tabernacle. But what it's saying here when it says that he dwelt among us is that God builds a new tabernacle where the very presence of God, where you encounter God, It's through the the body, the physical, breathing, speaking, sweating presence of Jesus. And anyone who came near him and encountered him was coming near to the presence of God. That's how he went about his mission. We don't have a generic Jesus, but we have a specific Savior who showed up in a particular time in a particular place. He spoke Aramaic. He practiced Shabbat. He, he uh, grew up hearing the, he, the stories of, this, of, of, of the Old Testament. I don't know, maybe they had hummus back then, but whatever was, they were eating back then, he was eating it. He showed up in a specific place in a specific time in his body, and people encountered the presence of God through him. But have you ever wondered why then? And what about all the other places? Don't they get the presence of God? What about the dorms in Manzanita? Why didn't Jesus incarnate and show up at those dorms? Why not Intel? Why doesn't Jesus just show up with his pocket protector and, you know, show up at Intel? No offense, Intel people. Why not South Phoenix? Why not now? Do we not get the real physical presence of God? Jesus actually has an answer for it in this passage. In verse 22, it says, and when he had said this, after he commissioned them, it says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This alludes to Genesis when God breathes life into Adam and Eve. And as he's launching this new creation, this new mission, he's breathing into them and putting his presence in them through the Holy Spirit pointing to when all of God's people would be filled with his spirit. So in other words, how does, the, how does God's presence show up in Manzanita or in South Phoenix or on McClintock Road? It's through his spirit that dwells in us and we go with our physical bodies and we are present there representing Jesus, conduits of the presence of God to a world that needs to come and encounter God. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus showed up and was really present in people's lives. And he's calling us to do the same. There are some challenges. I want to I just invite you to think about something. You exist here and now. That should blow your mind. Think about it. Your life is not an accident, no matter what your parents said about you. You are here and now. You could have been a 19th century railroad worker. 
You could have been an Alaskan fisherman. Have you ever wondered, why am I not a Pakistani cricket player? If you haven't wondered that, you should. Because that is just as likely as you being here and now, chosen by God. You see, you are here and now for a specific purpose. It's not by accident. It's not because your parents listened to some Marvin Gaye years ago. I mean, that played a part in it. But you are here and now because God determines, as it says in Acts 17, of when and where we are going to live so that he can go about accomplishing his mission. When you show up in your neighborhood and in your home and in your place of work, you are showing up to a place that God has put you in and fully intends to have his presence encountered through you being present in that place. But there are some barriers to presence, barriers to us showing up to our own life that distract us from being present where we are. One thing is I know many of us, myself included, can be preoccupied by reputation. We're so focused on the opinions of others and managing how they think of us that we forget to think about them, the very people God sent us to. Caring so much about what other people think about us keeps us from caring about others and thinking about them. Sometimes we think that we're present, but we're living in the life of our mind with these spinning thoughts and not present to the people that God has put in front of us. For some of us, we don't live in the, in the present. Some of us just live in the future our mind perpetually spinning and thinking about the, the, new, the new job or the new house, always on Zillow, always on Indeed, bouncing from house to house and job to job and friends to friends without roots. And when we don't seek those roots in, we're always living in this in-between space and never really being a conduit of God's presence anywhere, abdicating our calling to display his glory and his love where he put us. Now, don't get me wrong. Getting a new job can be a very good thing, and a new home can be a very good thing, but eventually we have to stop bouncing and sink roots into where God has us. 90% of people I read recently, probably exaggerated, but 90% of people says are, are thinking about changing jobs. And what does that mean? It means Whatever job you think you're going to go to, somebody's just vacated it because they didn't like it. So sink roots in deep, unless God is really sending you somewhere. Others can be distracted by the screen and not be present. Whether it's Netflix or video games, we go live somewhere else rather than the place that God has us. Some of us are more focused on the Marvel universe than the actual universe. Some of us care more about the suffering in the squid games than the suffering of our own neighbors. And I think a, a, a trick that Satan does is he doesn't have to, to, to harm you. He just distracts you like a kitten with a laser light to not be present in the place where God has us. And if we can reorient ourselves to Jesus and look around and say, where am I? And God, how do you want to show up through me and be present here? We can be conduits of God's presence and his mission. 
On your seats, I have a card there, and one question I want you to ask is, where has God sent you? Where has he put you? And what does it look like to show up there? So that's number one. He sent us on a mission of presence. But number two is that he sent with good news. Jesus was sent to bring good news, and we are sent to bring good news. I'm going to make a powerful theological statement here. Jesus wasn't a mime. He didn't just show up and start and commit to silence. He wasn't an anonymous philanthropist, but he had something to say. He had a message. He was stepping into a world where people thought God was silent and had stopped speaking. But when Jesus showed up and he opened his mouth and he started to speak, people began to hear the voice of God. And he had a message. The message was that the the good news, the invisible God can now be seen when you see me. The God whom you couldn't hear can now be heard when you encounter me. And Jesus is showing up as the one who's the answer to the deepest needs and the full embodiment of God's presence. And he's going around and he's preaching about it and announcing it. The core of his message, you can see in the book of John, uh, the book is structured around these seven I am statements where Jesus makes these powerful statements starting with I am. And what he's doing here is that word I am, a goyemi, it's like, it's, a, it's an allusion to the Old Testament uh, name for God and saying, that God that you knew here, I am him. I am showing up. And he begins to tell the world about who he is and what he's about and how he satisfies the deepest needs of the broken world. But he doesn't do it just with abstract concepts. He's not like just this professor who's given you definitions and stuff, but he goes around looking at very earthy metaphors where he takes the old, like these very ordinary things and says, these will show you who I am and what I'm like. Let's take a look at him. He said, I am the bread and the bread of life. He uses ordinary bread to illustrate the fact that he's the one who satisfies the hunger of our lives. He says that he's the light of the world in John 8. He's he's talking about how he's the one who delivers us from darkness and shows us the face of God. In his preaching, he, he has a message that he's the door. He's a door for the sheep. He's like a gate. Talking about how he provides refuge for those who are lost in this world. Shows up at a at a funeral for a bunch of people who are looking to the day of resurrection. And he says, I am the resurrection and life. I am the one who has power over death. He says, I am the shepherd. I'm the the God who watches over you and protects you. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I'm like a grapevine from whom you draw your life. His message is that God can be known, and God can be known through Jesus. But the way Jesus goes about announcing this good news is by taking the ordinary stuff of life and showing how it's a metaphor for how God has provided Now, 
Jesus was sent to bring the good news, and so are we. In these places, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, on our teams, in our classes, there are people who need to hear good news. The good news of who Jesus is. The good news of what he has done. You know, this is historically called evangelism, where you open your mouth and you talk about who God is and you invite people to come and to know him. But I know a lot of us kind of bristle at that idea because you've seen it done poorly. You think of evangelism as uh, maybe like you're doing a timeshare for Jesus, like he wants to sell timeshares to heaven and you kind of got to like bait and switch people. Or maybe like a cross between a timeshare and a theologian where you have to have all the perfect answers and you, you just show up and you've got half salesman, half theologian, high pressure tactics to close the deal for Jesus. That's not what this is. If we actually want to learn from him, we should watch what Jesus does and say, what can, what can we learn? What, what is he doing? He's not using, he's not talking about all this abstract principles, but he's looking around and, and saying the very normal stuff of life is an analogy, is a metaphor, is a storyteller that helps us to know about God or about our need for God. And here's what I would say. Here's my thesis, that there's not a single thing that can't in some way tell us a story about God or a, a hint of what God is like. Let's, let's put it to the test. You guys up for putting it to the test? You look around the room, what do we see? We see lights. Lights tell the story of the God who delivers us from darkness. You see guitars. Guitars tell the story. They point to the God who sings over us with joy. John, if he's in here, his hipster shoes, what can they tell us about God? Tells us that God is creative and a God of protection as his feet don't get messed up as he walks around. But we can go beyond this room too. Think about an airplane. An airplane speaks to the, about the author of the laws of physics who's bringing us home. An eight-hour video game session speaks to our longing to escape and be in a better place. Even diapers. Some of you parents are like, okay, let's see what you can do with this. Diapers. But diapers. What is a diaper other than a wretched substance in a world that can, and it can only be remedied by sacrificial love. This is basically the gospel, right? <laughs> all of creation, all of the world is showing a metaphor that's calling out to us. This is what God's like, and this is our need for him. Right, let's play stump the pastor. Throw something out there, and let's see if we can come up with it. Pizza. Pizza shows that God is both good and sustains us, yet he is beautiful and satisfies us. Absolutely. Traffic? Absolutely. Traffic. As you're waiting in that traffic, you can't help but believe that, that, that something is messed up here. But the day is coming. When I will make it home, but I can't do it by myself, there's a vehicle that carries me there, and that's Jesus. Yeah. And so, 
This is, I'm not just trying to play games here. This is kind of fun. But the reality is, wherever you are, your context is surrounded by metaphors and analogies by which we can point and say there's something about God here as we explain it to others. And so rather than selling timeshares to heaven, it's more like we are tour guides who say, look at the world that God has put us in. And what does it have to say to us about the God who's coming to rescue us? One of my favorite places in the world is the Motown Museum in Detroit. Who's been there? Okay, a few of you. The rest of you guys, what are you doing with your vacations? That's the spot. All right, the Motown Museum. At first, I wasn't impressed. I showed up there, and um, I thought it was just a room with a bunch of desks, like old desks and old furniture. Like, wow. I was even joking with my friend. I was like, wow, we came all this way to see a desk. But then the tour guide came. And the tour guides in the Motown Museum are the best. And the woman came over and she explained to us that the very desk that I had been mocking was the desk where Diana Ross sat when she was the secretary for Motown. And they didn't know she could sing, but they needed to do some mic checks. So they said, hey, go get the secretary. She can do a mic check. And when she began to do a mic check and to sing, this angelic voice came and they realized that they had something special there. And the next day on that very desk, there's a contract for Diana Ross to sing for Motown. And if that wasn't enough, the tour guide jumps up on the desk and begins beautifully singing these Diana Ross songs. By the way that she was functioning as a tour guide, she had transformed that room for us and taken these seemingly mundane things and showed us that it was a part of a bigger and beautiful story. And that's what evangelism is for us, that we're sent out into the world to, to say, look around. There's a God who's rescuing you, and all of life, all of creation is speaking to who he is and what he's about. Now, you're, you're probably thinking, okay, before I go out there and just start saying, hey, look at that pizza, um, give, me like a, give me like a tangible example of this. Whenever I meet a, a father, you know, oftentimes I will send a text message, whether they're a believer or not yet following Jesus. Um, here's one of them. He said, hey, I wanted you to know that I think you're an incredible father. Uh, I know that we've got different beliefs, but one of the things I believe is that God is a father and that good fathers show people what God is like. Your life teaches me about the God you don't yet believe in. And then I said, LOL, seriously, what advice would you uh, have for me to be a better father? And we end up having this great conversation about fatherhood and about what it means for God to be a father. But look around, see the images, the metaphors that God has scattered in the world. And let's go tell the world the good news that those things point to. So we've been sent with good news. And finally, we've been sent with good works. Jesus was sent with good works, particular good works to do, and so are we. He wasn't just standing on the Galilean hillside doing TED Talks, but he actually got his hands dirty and did some stuff. He cared for the poor. He welcomed the outsider. And then he did a whole bunch of miracles like healing and walking on water. 
And these weren't just party tricks for God to show off, but what he's doing in these things is he's providing a preview, a preview of the future day when God comes to restore all that's broken. And it's providing a, a, a sign, a foretaste, a glimpse of what that day looks like. When he heals someone, it's to point to the day when all healing will be there. When he comforts someone, it's to point to the day when God will wipe the tears away from our eyes. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's pointing to the day when death will be no more. And so the book of John is also organized not just around these seven I am statements, but these seven miracles, these seven signs that Jesus does as a way of pointing to God's future when he makes all things new. So in, in, let's talk about them. John 2, we see Jesus keeps the party going. He turns water into wine because they've run out of wine. And he does this cool thing that keeps the party going. Other than just a cool party trick, he is pointing to the future when we will feast with God and be welcomed with him. We see these three healing miracles that happen, healing the official son, someone who's paralyzed, someone who's blind. And it's pointing to the day when Jesus will heal all wounds. In the raising of Lazarus, he's pointing to when death will be vanquished. In the calming of the storm and walking on water, he's pointing to the God who has authority over creation and that there's a day when we will have nothing to fear. In feeding the 5,000 in John 6, he's pointing to a day when we'll be satisfied in God and there will be no more hunger. Now we, he's called to good works and we are called and sent to do good works. I imagine some of you are probably saying, wait a minute, you saying that I should just be doing miracles all the time? I mean, God's been answering a lot of prayers around here, so I don't want to denigrate that because a lot of cool things have happened and people have been healed. But you might be saying, that, that's sweet. I'll pray for people to be healed, but I don't know how to turn water into wine. I don't know how to, to raise someone from the dead. I don't know how to feed 5,000 people. As a matter of fact, Jim, why don't you point one person out in the church who's fed 5,000 people, and then I'm all in. Well, what if I have an answer for you? My answer is Jessie Yoshioka. Now, she has never, at least according to my knowledge, miraculously fed 5,000 people by multiplying the loaves and fish. Like, she's never done that before, I don't think. But God has used her in profound ways to feed even more than that. See, if you look at her work, her work as a nutritionist for a school district, she helps provide free or reduced lunch for kids who desperately need it. Some kids, it's the only meal that they get in a day. And how many kids do they serve? 8,000 a day. Look, five, feeding 5,000 people is a light day's work for her, right? <laughs> she is doing the miraculous work of being God's instrument of, of provision. And now you might say, well, that's, that's not that big of a deal. That's not a, a miracle. Tell that to the kid who's getting his only meal of the day. That is miraculous. But that's not, that's not it. On the weekends, she helps lead our volunteers at the Rio Vista Center. 
where they, they basically take the extra supply from the grocery stores and they provide a free farmer's market for the working poor, feeding hundreds of families per week. See, God is still showing up feeding the masses, but he's doing it through the work of people like Jesse, these mundane miracles. You see, when people in our city cry out to God and are hungry and say, God, give me this day my daily bread, He doesn't answer that prayer by making bagels fall from the sky, but he answers that prayer by raising up people like Jesse. And so while she wasn't up here today on this stage being commissioned, she is sent by Jesus. She is sent by Jesus to be the high priest of hummus, (laughs) the minister of mangoes, the apostle of applesauce. She has a sacred calling. And she does those things and performs those mundane miracles to point to the day when hunger will be no more. What about you? Maybe you're like Brant Morgan. It's a general contractor, works in construction. He's never calmed a storm, to my knowledge. But his work in construction puts a roof over the heads of hundreds of people. And for those people, when an Arizona monsoon rolls in, he has calmed the storm. He has protected them from a thousand or a hundred degree temperatures in the day, showing God's authority, pointing to the day when we will all dwell in perfect safety. Or maybe you're like the Yates family. The Yates family, I've never seen them turn water into wine. They have some good food, but they've never done that. But they provide such joyful hospitality and celebrate other people that they point to a day when we'll all be welcomed into the eternal feast of Jesus. You say, there's nothing miraculous about that. Tell that to my daughter, who when she went to the house, often feeling overlooked in the world, says, I feel seen. Maybe you're like Karis Vaughn has never restored the sight of the blind, but she has a miraculous vision, able to see people who are overlooked and moves toward them and points to the day when we will see the face of Jesus, the one who has always seen us. Now, God can answer our prayers, and he's been doing it in some blatantly miraculous ways, but let's not forget the mundane miracles through which he works through us in the ordinary stuff of life, the good works we were called to do. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created for good works, that we are God's workmanship. And the word workmanship is this word poema. It's, it's from the word we get poetry. And it has this idea that, that we are like God's poetry. And just as God carefully, or a poet carefully crafts the sentences, God has carefully crafted you and made you a particular way and, and created you for good works. For those who, I know that there are some people who are kind of wondering, what is that for me? It is my favorite thing to do, to walk with people and help them uh, think through that. So on those, uh, those flyers that we have there, there's a QR code to sign up for the mission plan process. I would love to, to meet with you and talk through some of that stuff. I'm going to ask some stuff of you, but I definitely want to walk with you. And so today, as we, we come to a close, we must, we must believe 
that we are sent on a sacred mission, a, content, a continuation of Jesus' mission, to bring the presence of God in the places of pain in the world, to come and announce good news, and to bring good works that point to a future when God is going to make all things right. See, there I started this by saying that there is a liar in the room, but there is also a truth teller in the room. The Spirit of God is present here and able to work and able to bring things to mind of what God wants our attention to be on. So I'm going to give a few moments now of silence for you to sit with those questions that I have in front of you and just ask God to reveal where has he sent you? What are the good works? Who needs to hear the good news? And then in a few moments, we're going to come and we're going to commission you as people who are a part of God's mission and sent into his ministry. So let's pray. Let's take a moment of silence and pray. Spirit of God, we ask that you would guide us and lead us. Jesus, that you would empower us for your mission, that you would distract us from our distractions, and that you would help us to feel the weight of being commissioned and sent by you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, the very people that you commissioned at the beginning of this believe that you are commissioned in God's mission as well. And that your work and what you're being sent to in your lives are a conduit of God's presence. So we're gonna take this moment to commission you as well. If you would stand up now uh, and open up your hands to receive a blessing, we are going to speak a prayer over you and uh, send you out into what God has called you to do. Will, will you lead us? God of heaven and earth, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us eyes to see that all of life is holy to you, O Lord, even as our worship this day is holy to you. Teach us to see ourselves as sent into your world to participate in your mission. Help us to live faithfully as we are sent. For those sent to the home to serve roommates, care for children, and welcome others, help us so to display your hospitality. hospitality. For those sent to the marketplace, whose labor forms our common life in the city, the nation, and the world, help, help us, us to, to reflect your image through the work of our hands. For those sent to a particular place, a neighborhood, or the nations, help, help us, us to, to embody your gospel faithfully. For those you have drawn to a particular aspect of the world's brokenness, help, help us to serve with your wisdom, justice, and mercy. As we are sent, fill us with the power and presence of your spirit 
especially in the overlooked and mundane moments. We pray, we pray together, together in the name, name of Jesus, who created all things, holds together all things, and is reconciling all things. Amen. Church, let's worship and sing as people who are sent by Jesus into his mission. Come forward and take communion, pray, and sing together.